today as we listen to the words that Tim just read so well from Deuteronomy and from Luke 17. We're going to continue our look at life together by talking about a simple but profoundly difficult concept called gratitude. This inward attentiveness that gives itself outward expression and recognition to God that we are every moment walking into a world that has been handed over to us with gifts and abilities and opportunities and even limitations that have been drawn up for us. And so it would be fitting that we be a people of gratitude. And as we're talking about this, I, I think back to something I've shared with some of our officers and some of our, my small group and even our staff about a talk I recently heard by Mr. Andy Stanley about keystone habits. He's ripped somebody else off and gives them credit, but I can't remember their names, and so I'm just going to say he said it. And this man talks about keystone habits as these ritualized things that we do, whether we realize it or not, that have ramifications for all manner of other things that we do. In other words, they're foundational. They're catalysts. If we do this, then a number of other good things might unfold, or if we do this, a number of other bad things might be spun out from them. A bad keystone habit would be routinely staying out till three in the morning. Because only God should be up then. There isn't a lot of praying going on at three in the morning and a lot of care for the poor going on at three in the morning or other acts that you would want to blog about. There are good keystone habits, though, that sociologists and psychologists alike and even parents who have done so realize, like eating supper together at a table made of physicality, like wood, in chairs with your bohunkuses on them. And even if your elbows are on the table, so long as you're gathered around it in your house, eating food, even if impolitely, there are all number of good things that begin to run wild because of that habit. We're just going to be here. We're going to eat here. They tell us that families that eat together, they, they tend to have more relational connection. They tend to be more trusting of each other. There's more health in the family. There's more fiscal wisdom and restraint. All these good things that flow out of eating together. That's a good keystone habit. People who exercise. Most people who exercise tend to eat better because they exercise. Some people realize that exercise makes you hungry, but hungry doesn't always make you exercise back. But by and large, if you keep a food journal or you exercise, you'll tend to want to take care of the body more, which makes you eat better, which makes you exercise, makes you eat better, et cetera, et cetera, than you're on the cover of GQ. Keystone habits. Well, I would argue as we listen to these stories, as we listen to God speaking to his people on the plains of Moab as they're about to cross over the Jordan after a long time of living off of, you know, ramen noodles and Kool-Aid, you know, divinely given, but not very exciting fare. 
Nothing you could tweet about, nothing that would fill up an Instagram. I mean, you know, one day, look at this in the school, we're having ramen noodles and Kool-Aid. But after the 40th year of that, you're like, I'm not checking their post anymore. And they're here on the edge. And they're about to go into this land, this smorgasbord land. That's ecologically robust where everyone will have a Tesla vehicle. There's no petroleum needed. And people are going to live in gated communities and mixed-use buildings. And everyone will be a hipster and everything will be well. And God wants them to know, because he knows how we work, that you've been in this large, extended desert period of deprivation, and once you set one toe into the land of fatness, of fullness, of plenty, as much Ron Swanson fare as you want, beef and shrimp all swirled together, you're going to forget me. The more you have you're going to start thinking, hey, I have a lot. I must be a lot. I've got more than other people. I must be more than other people. You're going to, it's just going to happen. You're going to be tempted to forget me. You're going to be tempted to go your own way. And so he urges them to remember him. The story about the lepers We find Jesus somewhat incredulous as ten of them who have lived their lives as outcasts, who have been given this awful entrustment called leprosy, a disease that affects your nerves. You can't feel stuff. You chopping up carrots and knock off your finger and not know. You could step into a fire by accident, roll into it at night while you're warming yourself beside it and burn yourself and have no idea. These people who live on the edges, people from hard places, we would say today, who have to shout out when others are coming, unclean, unclean, to warn others. They don't have a place in the community, and they're they're crying out to God for mercy. Ten of them receive it. And Jesus, before an apparent watching audience, says, when the one comes back, when the one throws himself at the feet of Jesus, when the one is beside himself with gladness, He says, weren't there some other dudes? They got some other good stuff thrown into their lives. Didn't nine other people get renovated too? He's a little bit stunned. So as we listen to these and we have these stories sort of percolating in us, as we let them stew in us and us and them steeping here for a while, seeping into our pores, One thing I think you will easily see is that a keystone habit worth developing for the people of God. What God wanted the people in Israel to know when they moved into the promised land. What these lepers, hopefully at least this one, would have known. And what he wanted his disciples to see is that the people of God who have been commonly acted upon by the mercy of God are to be a people of attentive gratitude to God. We enter, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, in one place, the common life together, not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. And you'll notice if you just have a casual glance and you are even a moderately astute person, 
that the scriptures are chock full of admonitions that we praise God, that in all things we give thanks, that we be characterized by giving gratitude to God in all circumstances, for this is God's will for us. This is the kind of thing that is meant to characterize us, to be a keystone habit. And when this habit happens, all manner of other good things flow from it in the community. So how do you start to do it, though? Well, I would urge you to look at this. When you have habits in your life, there are usually, if you've had bad habits, for instance, there are triggers for those habits. There's something that happens every time she says this, I find my blood starting to boil as if someone has put a pot of it on the eye of the stove. A trigger. There's a certain kind of thing that she says to you or that he says to you that makes your blood boil and a rage comes over you, a torrent of blinding fury. You're looking at a trigger. If you overdrink, you might wonder what things happen. Am I hungry? Am I angry? Am I lonely? Am I tired? Aren't those the four common things that they look at as triggers? You notice when there's a trigger, that it tends to move you to a kind of habit. So I would urge you, if you're someone who would like to aspire to be a thankful recipient of what God has entrusted to us, there are a number of triggers you might look at in your life that you might start to respond, even if it's mechanically. You might start to respond differently than you normally and instinctively would. Let's take, for instance, when you find yourself discontented. Now, I may be speaking theoretically, but it is possible that there are a great number of us who make it a habit to live as if by motto, by the breaking of the Tenth Commandment. Catch up with me. The Tenth Commandment, does someone know what that one is? It's the one about where you let your heart wander off to. Boom. A.J. Dorsus bringing down the house. The ten words of Moses in your face. Do not covet. Do not set your heart, we're told, on the, the sleeker husband of your friend or on the job that your roommate just got. You know, these kinds of things happen to us. We're people in an indigenous state who find it very easy to always think we're being held out on. It might happen to you if you're in a dorm room and you think, wow, isn't this interesting? Here I am and my roommate and my hallmate across the hall and my hallmate across the hall from there and the one two doors down, they've all gotten engaged within the five, last five minutes at Covenant College. Is this a cosmic joke against me? And your instinct isn't to say, if you really, really want to get married, say, or when someone gets a, a really cool new house and you're stuck in your old house, or someone gets a new car, a great vacation, or they, they have these friends that you wish you had, or this executive-styled hair that you wish you had, or even just hair. Maybe you just want hair. You don't care what kind it is. Even you look like a Chia pet. Just hair. Amen. <laughs> <He said that. laughs> Man, I got a lot of chatter over here today. I like it. I'm praying for you, Michael. I'm praying for you. 
But these things happen to us indigenously, and so you've got to figure out, what am I going to do? And of course, the instant thing to do sometimes is to, is to feel pity. Dang, why does good stuff happen to everybody else? Why must it have been raining the day I was born, as one blues singer said? Why does everything good happen to her and not to me? Why am I the only one in this position, and, not, and why does it not happen to them? That's the instinctive thing to do. But see, when you do that, instantly you've started doubting God. You've, you've gone off the path of God. You're not thinking about God. If you're thinking about Him at all, you're only thinking about Him as someone who obviously doesn't care anything about you, but He obviously cares about them a great deal more. But, if you're someone who's made it a conscious decision that you are going to resolve to be a person of gratitude as a keystone habit so that many good things can flow from that. What you might start doing is when something good happens to someone else, instead of envying them or trying to level them or talking bad about them to make them look worse and you look better or feel worse and you feel better, perhaps you could, even if mechanically, you could say, thank you, God, that she just got engaged. Isn't that wonderful? Thank you, God, that he just got that really cool car. It's going to be so exciting for him when he goes off to work in the morning. Thank you, God, that they just got that amazing job. And I only make minimum wage. It's so amazing that they're going to be able to be provided for so well just to try to wean yourself off yourself. You can also, you know, because you'll find this happening. If you make it your habit that every time discontentment comes on you, you notice something that someone's got that you want, you feel deprived, and you start to, you ask God, help me be grateful here. Help me have the kind of attentiveness that recognizes your mercy to me in this deprivation. One of the things that will invariably happen in this keystone habit that will flow out into your life is you, like the Apostle Paul, will learn the secret of being content in every circumstance. You'll start to learn when you get in your car and you say, you start up the car. You may not like the car. And you say, thank you, God, it started. That's a start right there. Because you know what? It could have not started. And then when you get someplace, you could say, thank you, God, that the the wheels didn't fall off. The fuel tank didn't explode. I made it here again in this sexy auto. Convert my eyes that I could see it as a sexy auto. You start practicing noticing little things that God has given you and not what he hasn't given you. You start imagining, hey, if God has withheld something from me and given it to someone else, they must have needed it. I must not have. Because we're going back, you see, we're going back and we're saying, no, 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 I don't want to forget God. I want to recognize that every day, like the Israelites moving into the promised land, every day I walk into a world that I didn't make. To a world that is moving and humming and being orchestrated and designed by the God who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Which is a fancy way of saying is, God's got a lot of good plans and he's going to make sure they're happening and they're all really good. And so what's happening to me right now must be part of that plan. Part of that good intention. I'm worshiping the God who right now, as I try to thank Him, as I feel deprived and try to practice this gratitude habit, is listening and orchestrating 
and superintending the prayers of the of the mom who's dropping her kid off at daycare and she's worrying as she drives to work. How's, how's, how's he going to do? How's she going to do at nap time? What's she going to do about eating? And the, the grandmother who's sitting alone at her house and feeling sad that none of her kids call. But then feeling ashamed that she feels anger and pity at them and she's lonely and she's asking God... To hear and someone across the world who's got a business meeting and they're scared and they don't know what to do and there's a lot of money on the line and there's a lot of opportunity that might ensue and they're praying about these and God is listening to them all and he's somehow choreographing what happens in a merciful way to the praise of his glorious grace, the Apostle Paul would say in some place. If you start to do this, you'll find gratitude welling up with you. You'll start to find contentment. See, gratitude and contentment, they always grow together. Like an old married couple, that the, the longer they've been around each other, they start to look a lot alike. You notice this? I'm not pointing at We don't have any old people in our church. I'm like the oldest guy here. Just kidding. There's seven of you older than me. Bring them. Come on, invite your friends. We want older people too. Gratitude and contentment will will grow as you fight your discontentment in giving thanks to God. But to do this, of course, like any kind of development of habit, you'll have to sort of do what you may do if you have a child who has asthma. I visit a lady who has emphysema, and she's always having three times a day to put like a nebulizer into her mouth and breathing in this liquid steroid, I guess, that vaporizes and comes into her bronchial tubes and opens them up so that she can breathe. And it seems to me that to practice the attitude of gratitude, uh, a keystone habit of thankfulness, I'll never say attitude of gratitude on purpose again. I just said it accidentally. I feel like Zig Ziglar. Who's a wise and astute man. Make a note to myself not to say unscripted things, which is everything I say. (laughs) Here are the sermon notes. I have no idea what I was saying now. This nebulizer of grace. See, what happens, this is how you can practice gratitude, is you start realizing, like these lepers did, for instance, when they saw Jesus, they realized they were people who stood in need of pity. There were people outside the community. They weren't able to be involved in it. They weren't able to be connected in it. They had some malady that they couldn't fix, and they knew it. So they cried out to Christ, have pity on us, which is a cry for mercies from heaven. Give us things we don't deserve. Give us compassion from the heavens that we need that will mend us and remake us. And we are people who, at least theoretically, right, we're here on Sunday morning. We're part of God's church, and anybody here could be. They're not. And we realize that we, like those lepers, have been outsiders of God. And we've been estranged from his community. And the only reason we're a part of it is because God can't help himself but show mercy to people who cry out for it. And some of us know good and well that the only reason we cried out for it is because he was intent on giving it to us before we asked. It's his mercy. It's his tenderness. It's his desire for us that actually cause the cogs in our noodle to move around and say, hey, I need mercy from Jesus and you're going to come to him. 
And He's going to give it to you. And you take this nebulizer of grace to yourself and you say, what do I have that wasn't given to me? How am I part of this community except because Christ has acted for me? Everything, everything that I need has been done for me. I live by grace, which is by gift. Everything is a gift from God who does no evil, who's good all the time, and all the time is good. And so you breathe that in, and it helps you to be grateful. I can't see it, perhaps, but there's something to be grateful for here, too, for here. So I'm going to give thanks to God. Another trigger might be outsiders. You ever see people around people? You just can't stand. They make you grit your teeth. You want to talk bad about them. You feel superior to them. You can't stand the way they dress. You can't stand the way they act. You can't stand the way they look. This is impolite, isn't it? But I think if the history of humanity shows me anything, this happens quite a bit. It happens in families, it happens in cultures and neighborhoods and against nations and against other religions and races. You know, it's the kind of thing that happens a great deal. That's why the whole ministry of Jesus in the world could be summed up as a ministry of reconciliation. Because there's a whole lot of warring factions within us and around us. Even me against this microphone. But if you take any time you meet up with somebody that you're tempted to scorn... The panhandler whose eyes you don't want to meet. The solicitor who's asking something of you. The, the demanding family member who's always making you feel guilty. A spouse, a child, etc., etc. People who are on the outside of you. That you're tempted to hold in contempt. When you breathe in this nebulizer of grace and you realize... Do they not need grace like I do? Do they not, like I, stand with a huge deficit of need that has been met only by the grace of God that has occurred in Jesus Christ? What makes me, the Apostle Paul would say, any different than anyone else? What do I have that I have not received? If you're richer than someone else, and I know nobody I know who's rich thinks they're rich. I don't know one rich person. But I know a lot of people that other people think are rich. Do you ever pause to breathe in God's grace and say, do you know it's the grace of God that had it happen, that my ancestors were educated people who moved to this area, who, who did well and profitably in business and has trickled down through the generations. And I was born into a family where there was stability I was given soft skills to learn how to relate to people in the world. I was given educational opportunities. Things worked for me. When I gave an effort, there was a return. I learned that I could try something and then there would be something good to happen out of it. And then if you thought to the person you might scorn, why don't they just get a job? Say, what, if, what, what were they given? What was their life like? What was their life like three generations back? Did they learn the things I've learned? Have they been given the opportunities I've been given? Does they know, will it work for them? If they just work hard, they'll get all the opportunities I got. It causes you to give gratitude to God. It also tenderizes you for outsiders. 
They, like you, need mercy. We stand in need of the same mercy to breathe it in. And you can never hold anyone in contempt. That's why Christians have always been people, and when we're doing it right, who care not only about people in our same social or racial class, but we care across the divide. We care about orphans and widows. We care about people who live in trailer parks. As John Perkins said, poor white people in Mississippi ain't nobody love them. Everybody hate them, he said. Black people, Asian people, Latinos. Who are you tempted to look down on when you start breathing in the grace of God? You start being grateful that God has made when you see anyone, the image of God standing right there in front of you. A cause for gratitude, not contempt. Can you look at somebody else and say, look what God made here. A beautiful creation of His that He thought up. He thought they were worth being made and they're not like me. And He'll tenderize you to want to care for Him too. To come alongside, not as I'm someone better than you here, let me help you. Let me come alongside and let's let's be grateful together. The Apostles Paul said, that's the very thing I was eager to do to help the poor, he said. For him... Outsiders became insiders because of the grace of God. And that's part of how he had this gratitude. When you find yourself discontented, when you find yourself with outsiders, it's a good trigger to breathe in God's grace, to consider everything you have you've received. Everything you need is needfully given by Jesus. It can help you practice this keystone habit of gratitude. Now, it is possible. It's possible that when you practice gratitude, it may feel insincere to you. Sometimes it may feel mechanical and strained when you try to thank God for hard things that have come into your life. Thank you, Lord, that that person is spreading bad rumors about me. I'm so glad that they're single-handedly destroying my reputation and everyone seems to be believing them. All praise be to you, Lord Christ. It feels a little hollow, like Mark Twain saying to his wife when she cussed at him one time, and he said, my dear, just laughing at her, which I'm sure made everything better. You obviously know the words, but you don't know the tune. You don't know how to cuss right. You get the words, but you don't know the music of cussing. Let, Let me help you with that. Well, it is possible that it can feel insincere, but think about what you do with your children. Don't you train your children to say thank you? Tell your grandfather thank you. Tell the nice man who just complimented you thank you. Tell her thank you. Tell your mom thank you. And when they say it, you say, that didn't sound sincere enough. What's wrong with you? If you do, stop it. Don't do that. You're training them. You're training them to notice that someone besides them had something to do with them. Something happened good outside of them, and it wasn't because of them. It was because of the generosity of the other. And see, that's what we're learning every single second that we're awake, hopefully. Because when you have this keystone habit of gratitude, it starts with the acknowledgement of God. You just say, I'm going to make it a habit to say, thank you, God. To try to notice ways to thank, or if I can't, to say, God, help me to thank you. Help me to be attentive and appreciative. Because the alternative is to forget about God altogether. 
And see, we've been told that the history of the world could be summed up as people neither giving thanks to God nor glorifying Him as God, which makes you a fool, which turns your heart dark, which makes sexual confusion run rampant, which makes people invent ways of harming each other, which creates division. And it all starts because the people come out into the world and they say, somehow, inexplicably, I must have something to do with all this. I am the master of my fate. I walk out into a world that I have made. And so the starting point for a new world is people with the humility to recognize there's a generosity outside of you that you wake up to each morning. And even if your life is hard, which means most of you in some ways, even though a lot of us have, you know, like... uh, Louis C.K. says most of us could lose half our stuff and still have more than the average Canadian. <laughs> and he says we have, I won't use the words, he, uses, we have white, he, well, he says we have uh, first world problems, we'll say that. It's where your life is so amazing that you make up something to be upset about. You're standing at the ATM. And it's like taking 30 seconds. And they're asking you which language you want. You're like, man, this is... This is bull. I have to find, ask them, tell them what I want, Spanish or English. I'm an American. I shouldn't have to wait for this. We have to make up stuff to gripe about sometimes. And sometimes that's why gratitude just helps us to be thankful for what is. But sometimes the problems are real. And it seems that God is absent. And in such times it's valid, I think, to think about Our friend Job, you may have read about old Job. You know the story, I think, and I close with this. Because Job had a lot of awfulness and rottenness visit him. And he had well-meaning friends, perhaps, try to help him out of that, help him understand perhaps you've just done something wrong, Job. Maybe you just need to clean your life up a bit and things will turn around for you. And he keeps demanding an audience with God because he knows that God has to have something to do with his life, which all wise people know. And he keeps insisting and he keeps insisting, and then suddenly one day, the Doppler radar 5200 in ancient Palestine, and the tornado appears. And something surely more frightening than James Earl Jones' voice comes out of it. Who is this? It's not Darth Vader. Who is this? Who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge. Brace yourself like a man, he says, and I will question you and you will answer me. And then he proceeds with his own little version of snark, I guess. And he says, Job, do you remember when we were sitting there And we were drafting out plans for Acadia National Park and and Yosemite and Mount Kilimanjaro. Do you remember when I was thinking up koala bears and avocados that people would figure out how to grind up and eat with chips? Do you remember all that, Job, being as old and wise as you are? Wasn't that awesome, Job? You remember when I marked off the dimensions and I dug the footers for the world? I didn't even use any earth-moving equipment. 
I just said stuff. And, and when I created boundaries for the sea and the earth, the morning stars came out singing a tune and the angels were dancing a jig. You remember that, Job? Wasn't that awesome? Were you there when that happened? Because you're so wise and so smart and so old, have you ever, Job, given orders to the morning? Have you ever said, it's time to get up, it's time to start a new day, world? Have you ever done that? And on and on he goes, and at the end of it, Job is a little bit like Miss Turpin in the Flannery O'Connor story, Revelation, where she has a feigned kind of gratitude, a feigned kind of acknowledgement of God. She's sitting in a waiting room and she says, if it's one thing I am, oh, it's grateful. When I think of all I could have been besides myself and what all I got, a little of everything and a good disposition besides. I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way it is. It could have been different. For one thing, somebody else could have gotten my Claude. That's her husband. Not Claude, O-D-A-U-D. At the thought of this, she was flooded with gratitude and a terrible pang of joy ran through her. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you, she said. She's in a waiting room of a doctor's office, being self-righteous and annoying, but thanking God all over the place. And the next line is, the book struck her directly over her left eye. The angry girl threw a book at her, a book on human development. It hit her in the eye. Chaos ensued. She looks at the girl, the college girl with the pimply face, and says, what do you have to say to me? And she answers her, you go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. Hopefully that doesn't happen to you in the doctor's office. Job got hit upside the head with a book. Sometimes we do too. We get ourselves revealed to ourselves and we have to say, wait, wait, wait. I don't know much about the universe. I don't know much about what's supposed to happen. I know what I want to have happen. I know I would like to have happen. But I am someone who has a master. These lepers call Jesus master. And therefore, he must know what's better than I know. He gives orders to the morning. Surely he can give order to the circumstances of my life, which are surely like have come to me like the water goes through your Brita filter in your house. They've been Brita filtered through, through the suffering sovereign's hands. He's handed to you what he wants you to have. And your gratitude will be connected to your humility. It will annihilate other sins and it will cause contentment to grow. And you will be a picture of Job who then said, wow, I'd heard a lot about you, but now I've seen you. And I repent. With his hand over his mouth, he stayed in stunned silence. And God gave him much grace. You know, the best thing that God has to give us is himself. That's why when contentment is addressed in Hebrews, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because the Lord has said, never will I leave you nor will I forsake you. The best thing he has to give you is himself. And he has. And we are his in a way that cannot be taken from us. And no matter what circumstance you meet, you can practice gratitude because you have the resources of God's undying affection who has washed your sin clean, who has made you acceptable and accepted with joy. And so now you can be thankful recipients. 
You don't have to walk into the world demanding your rights or demanding that things go your way. You walk into the world as people who have a master, but the master is one of mercy, who's strong and muscular, but he's tender and he's good without fail. Let us practice being a people like that, of thankful recipients of all the good graces of our God. Let's pray.